This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com slash COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. Radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And good morning, and welcome in on this last Sunday in May to Your Radio Doctor here on WPHT. My name is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and I'm very happy to be your host. And a very special thank you to our exclusive presenting partner, Independence Blue Cross. Today we'll be discussing COVID-19 in children, the need to maintain their well visits and vaccination schedules, and how to talk to children about COVID in a way that minimizes their worry. Our special guest, Dr. Katie Lockwood from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, is here to discuss important points about COVID-19 in children. She is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and an attending physician at CHOP Primary Care in South Philadelphia. And we share the same alma mater. She's a graduate of Jefferson Medical College, which makes us family, Katie. Welcome, Dr. Katie Lockwood. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Katie, unlike initial reports, now we see children are just as likely as adults to become infected, but have fewer symptoms, which are less severe and a lower fatality rate. But we need to understand the clinical picture to help control the spread. So would you say most viral illnesses tend to be milder in young children? In many cases, viral illnesses in children can be worse. For example, things like RSV and influenza can be life-threatening in young infants. But there are some viruses that are more severe in adults, like chickenpox. But as only 2% of coronavirus cases are in children, the novel coronavirus seems to be one of the viruses that's more severe in adults. Sure. Uh, There was a recent article in Pediatric Infectious Disease suggesting reasons why COVID-19 is milder in children. Marion, we aren't really sure yet why it is. 
um, more severe in adults, but there are some theories. So one is that the immune system changes as we age, and in some ways it's less able to fight off novel threats, whereas in young kids almost all threats are novel and their immune systems are built for this. Mm-hmm. Also, another theory is in general, children are less likely to have some of the underlying conditions that made adults with coronavirus sicker, things like diabetes, hypertension, chronic heart, lung, or kidney disease. But there are some kids who have these conditions, so we worry more about those kids getting COVID. Sure. And we had a chance to chat earlier in the week, and you mentioned that there are really four other types of coronavirus that cause frequent cases of the common cold in children. So many children have or most children have some immunity from those coronaviruses that help protect them from COVID-19, whereas adults, probably that immunity fades over time. And then we've talked before about the receptor on cells that lets coronavirus enter. It's called ACE2, and that seems to be expressed differently at different ages. So, Katie, what are the common symptoms parents should look for of COVID in their children? One of the things that's made diagnosing COVID-19 in children so challenging is that the symptoms can vary and they can look a lot like other viral illnesses or even seasonal allergies. Most common, though, is fever and cough, but not always. There are other symptoms that you might see, things like nasal congestion, runny nose, sore throat, shortness of breath, loss of taste or smell, diarrhea, vomiting, and headache. In a big study that came out of China, 4% of children with COVID were asymptomatic, so they had no symptoms at all. Overall, though, when children do have symptoms, they tend to be less severe than adults, as we mentioned. Fewer children have needed hospitalizations and ICU admissions compared to adults, and those at higher risk are those who are less than the age of one and those with underlying health conditions or weakened immune systems. So it must be so hard, especially for a new mom, to have a baby under the age of one and really know. Um, mm-hmm. So what would your message be to moms with little infants like that? Well, most kids are doing okay, so that's good, and they can be reassured to just treat their child like they would with any other cold or virus, making sure that they're comfortable and hydrated. And with any concerns, you should call your doctor because they may want to see them or test them. Sure. And then in April, reports from the UK described cases similar to Kawasaki disease, also known as toxic shock syndrome. Uh, maybe some of our listeners have never heard of Kawasaki, but you'll tell us it's been up in the, uh, in the news uh, frequently recently. Um, and I know that they have a different name for it. Um, the Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children, or MIS-C. So it started in the UK, and since then, the CDC, World Health Organization, have reported similar cases around the world, Europe, Canada, and in the U.S. here, mostly New York. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so while we were feeling reassured that COVID-19 was mostly sparing children, this new syndrome called Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome in Children, or MIS-C, as you said, is now getting a lot of attention. These patients were first thought to have similar pediatric diagnosis, uh, similar to a pediatric diagnosis called Kawasaki disease, but they seem to be much more ill. They usually have persistent fever and multi-organ involvement. So there's lots of different things going on, like GI symptoms, rash, conjunctivitis, which is pink eye, lethargy, confusion, swollen hands and feet, or even purple toes. So it looks different than coronavirus. Yeah. And in coronavirus, they might have... Instead of the the cough and fever, thanks, they might just have um, lack of appetite or lethargy, wouldn't you say? 
Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, and, and you're the pediatrician, what I'm reading, you're looking for a persistently high fever for at least three to five days uh, that would point the finger. And, and I know there are certain blood tests that are not specific to uh, MISC, but that might help make the diagnosis. But as you said earlier, with COVID-19, the diagnosis can be difficult because not all children will have the same symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right. And it starts weeks after COVID-19. So they often have different symptoms than the symptoms we've been hearing about with COVID-19. They can even be asymptomatic or have mild symptoms when they have COVID-19 and then later be diagnosed by a blood test when they present with this MIS-C. So whereas usually things like Kawasaki disease um, is in young children and infants, MIS-C has been seen in older children and adolescents, kids about 7 to 10 most commonly. And in most cases, these kids were previously healthy, unlike the kids who typically were getting coronavirus, were sick, uh, sick or had an underlying condition. Sure. And what's interesting about what you just said is maybe um, it's not from the virus itself, but some kind of reaction to the virus weeks later. And then out of the clear blue, you say, Gee whiz, they have a positive COVID test. I didn't even know they had it, uh, you know, weeks prior to that. Well, fortunately, it must be really frightening for parents to see this manifest in their child. But fortunately, it's rare. And as we all, anybody who has any experience in life, let alone medicine, will agree that this is all new and it's evolving and we have to keep our eyes open and stay humble about it. Would you tell parents to give their child Tylenol if they had those fevers, or I know we usually um, avoid aspirin. Yep, we like to avoid medicine unless absolutely necessary, so talk to your doctor first. Perfect. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with our special guest, Dr. Katie Lockwood from Children's Hospital. March 13, the president declared a national state of emergency. March 24, the CDC posted guidelines stressing the importance of routine well child care and immunizations, especially under 24 months when most vaccines are given. Then early May, the CDC noted a substantial decline in vaccines being ordered and doses given. Just last week, World Health Organization, UNICEF, and the Vaccine Alliance reported at least 80 million children in 68 countries could miss their routine vaccines. Katie, what's causing this decline and and what could happen as a result? Well, the cause of this decline has mostly been due to families staying home to stay safe from COVID-19. As you stated, for months now, we've been telling people to stay home and avoid the hospital unless absolutely necessary. And some doctor's offices may have been closed or had limited appointments. But even when they're open for immunizations, many parents have been hesitant to visit a doctor's office due to fear of exposure to COVID. So as Mm -hmm. a result, we're seeing a decline in vaccination rates. In New York City, the number of administered vaccine doses was down 63% overall, and in children older than two years of age, down 91%. In a CDC report among children aged five months, about two-thirds were up to date, between 2016 and 2019, but by May of 2020, fewer than half were up to date. And these are the young infants who are prioritizing their office visits. A possible result of this, yeah, Mm -hmm. a possible result of this is that children in their communities face an increased risk for outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases. 
as we relax all of our social distancing and the schools reopen, we worry that children will be exposed to diseases that are highly contagious, like measles, which also relies on having about 90 to 95% of the community vaccinated for herd immunity. We've seen this in pockets around the country before, but now we may see it in new communities if vaccinations are still delayed. Oh, my goodness. So I'd like to revisit an expression that you used in there called herd immunity. For our listeners, um, think of a herd immunity as uh, a herd of animals, but uh, <laughs> in infectious disease talk, it suggests that the whole community, in an entire community, um, herd immunity suggests that when so many people in a community have become immune to an infectious disease, it stops the disease from spreading. So this happens when just about everybody gets chickenpox or everybody gets the flu and everybody has an immunity or most people or if people are vaccinated. But for now, the best way to break the chain of spreading COVID is to stay separated until we get a vaccine or uh, until people build up immunity uh, when it's passed from person to person, which is a scary thought considering how severe it can be in some people. Um, so back to our discussion, Katie, we're talking about um, well visits and, and vaccinations. Uh, what are you seeing in a chop in terms of decline in well visits and vaccines, especially compared to the national numbers? Fortunately, at CHOP, we're only seeing about a 10 to 15 percent decrease in vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Throughout the pandemic, our primary care offices have remained open and with over 30 practices, we're spread out throughout the Philadelphia area. We've also done some proactive outreach to our patients, informing those who need vaccines how to come in and safely get them. Or for those who don't need vaccines, we make sure they have access to prescriptions and other needed resources. And you're actually bigger than the Philadelphia area. You're in New Jersey and Westchester. And as you say, you have over 30 practices. The other wonderful thing is that you have Children's Hospital Urgent Care Centers. That's right. Yep, we go all the way down to the shore and out west. And like you said, there's many different ways to find us. Yes, and and that's so reassuring for for people to hear. So let's review the value of well visits, the staple of good pediatric care. Yeah, well visits are the cornerstone of primary care. In addition to immunizations, we're monitoring developmental milestones and growth to ensure that a child is thriving. We check vital signs like heart rate and blood pressure. During the physical exam, we check for murmurs, wheezing, enlarged abdominal organs, eye abnormalities, and many other things. And there's subtle things on exam that a parent might not know is problematic, like petechiae, which are small broken blood vessels, or an older child may not disclose an abnormality that's more private, something like a testicular mass. We're also doing screenings for hearing, vision, lead, anemia, HIV, chlamydia, cholesterol, and scoliosis. So there's lots of things that we're looking for that we can pick up. And we call these well visits, but we often identify conditions or diseases, and more often, we're aiming to prevent those things from developing. Sure. And I guess after you see hundreds of children, your eye is so trained to pick up subtle changes that, um, you know, even I know our daughter's 30 now, but when she was a little girl, when she would look up, I noticed that her one eye drifted. And I would Mm -hmm. mention it to my sisters and say, no, no, you're crazy. And I captured it by by mistake one day in a photograph. But they're the Mm -hmm. kind of things that when you take your child that that you know exactly what subtle findings. I heard a story on uh, TV, a person was being interviewed and a doctor was watching the show and noticed that the woman's neck was enlarged. 
and called mm-hmm. the station and tracked the woman down, and she actually had a thyroid mass and found early cancer that cured her. So we're so right. fortunate to have such experienced clinicians in Philadelphia. So let's talk about telehealth. That's the new buzzword mm-hmm. in medical therapy. We can't uh, bring people uh, out of lockdown all the time, and, and that's really been a, a great help to us. Tell us about telemedicine at CHOP. Yes, telemedicine has provided innovative patient care during this pandemic. In CHOP mm-hmm. Primary Care, we've done over 12,000 video visits during the pandemic. Wow. It's about one in five visits now being done as a video visit. Mm-hmm. About 5,000 of those represent rashes and 2,000 are behavioral health concerns such as ADHD, anxiety, and sleep problems. These issues make sense for video visits, and they offer families an easy way to access their pediatrician without coming into the office, keeping both the family and the pediatrician safe. Telemedicine has benefits at different ages. For toddlers, it can be easier to entertain them in their home environment than in the doctor's office, which leads to less anxiety for both the parent and the child. For adolescents, many of them engage with me more by telemedicine than they do in the office, in part because they're used to engaging with friends on screens and it feels more natural. Sometimes we can even use things that we see in the visit as a conversation starter, such as tell me about the poster you have hanging up behind you. One drawback, though, is that it can be harder for teens to get privacy. In the office, I can ask parents to step out so I can have a confidential conversation with teenagers, especially around topics like contraception or depression screening. But in telemedicine encounters, the teen may not have a quiet space where they can speak confidentially. So I guess in the long run, in the future, it will be a mainstay. It'll become part of our um, medical provider menu to uh, offer telehealth mm-hmm. visits. And as you say, if your little baby is um, has a rash and you can put their little arm up to the screen, you haven't taken them out on a cold, snowy day and uh, exposing them to other children who might be sick. But we have to be careful that if a baby has or a child has belly pain, we have to put the, our hands on their abdomen and, and listen to their lungs and see if they're wheezing and, and all those sorts of things. So I think it will remain as a, a good adjunct. Um, but I know you probably have your offices open for those visits that we really have to maintain with all the lists of things that you gave great examples that we can't do through um, the George Jetson TV screen. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think we're going to have to be very thoughtful about how we incorporate telemedicine in the future. It certainly has a great role for many diagnoses, but it's not great for everything. And so the kids who need to come into the office can still safely come into the office, and telemedicine should be used when it's appropriate and safe for the patient. Yes. And I think the other thing that you mentioned that was really interesting was that for different agencies, it has really interesting pluses, like the adolescent who has questions about um, certain private issues uh, Mm -hmm. and that they, in the office, you can have the mom or whoever's with them step out. But when they're on the TV screen in the den in a common area at home, it's harder for them to talk to you. But for a little child who has ADHD, you could see them in their natural environment and see how they interact with their siblings or the, the pet. Or if the mom says, go get me that piece of paper, do they follow? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to see them in their own environment is really helpful, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everyone acts a little bit differently when they're in the doctor's office, right? You can be on your best yes. behavior. You can be nervous. Um, there's not a lot to do in there. There's not a lot of toys or things Thanks. to look at. 
But uh, when they're in their home environment, they are letting their guard down a little bit. And sometimes that can be a good thing for yes. assessments. Mm-hmm. In science, we call it in vivo, in life. <laughs> in vitro right. is in the Petri dish. Have you any stories of incidents that really, um, you said, go telehealth, that really made a big difference? Anything pops into your mind? Yeah, I think sometimes it's just the ability, like you said, to kind of access a patient without having them come out and be fearful. And so, um, and we can do it quickly. So rather than have to wait for an appointment many hours later in the office, we can usually schedule a telemedicine visit um, faster. And so I've had parents who've been very worried about things, whether it's a rash or a fall, and be able to get on the video visit with them very quickly and provide them reassurance so they didn't even have to leave their house. Right. Because I'm sure you could say, oh, you know, if the mom says my son fell off his bike and his arm is really hurting, uh, of mm-hmm. course, he's probably going to need an x-ray. But if you watch the little boy uh, move his arm in a certain way or be able to lift up something heavier than a piece of paper, you can say, OK, I think this can wait till tomorrow. It's probably not broken or whatever the case may be. Um, right. It'll be I, I'd love to know the history of telehealth because. At, at our institution at Jefferson, it's actually one of our emergency room doctors who spearheaded it. And you think, mm-hmm. gee whiz, if somebody's having chest pain or some life-threatening symptom or sign, you can't fix them through a TV screen. On the other hand, his, um, uh, I'm going to say argument, his reasoning is, well, at least if I have a chance to talk to somebody face-to-face, I have a better chance of convincing them to come in. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a magical tool uh, if we use it in the right way. And then um, any other stories? Have you seen much COVID? Let me ask you that. So through telemedicine, we can sometimes make the distinction whether or not someone is so sick that they need to come into the office or if they can stay home. And so as we said, with COVID, a lot of kids' symptoms are mild. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. just that visual picture of them, we can see, okay, they're doing okay. They look They look like they're breathing comfortably, they're eating, and they can stay home safely versus looking at them on the telemedicine and knowing that they need to come into the office. Right. Well, thank you for all this important information. We'll be back in just a moment after the break with Dr. Katie Lockwood. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And thank you for coming back to Your Radio Doctor. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie with a special guest from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Katie Lockwood. Thanks again for being here, Katie. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course. We know how important in-person visits are, well visits, vaccinations. When is it safe to come back to the pediatrician's office? I say now. I think our offices are cleaner than ever. We're thoroughly cleaning between patients. We're separating well and sick visits in both time and space. So we see well visits in the morning and sick visits in the afternoon. And some offices have separated their rooms where they see the sick and well visits. And some have separate entrances. It depends really on the office and their space available. Mm-hmm. Sometimes patients are waiting in their cars instead of the waiting room, so they can just go straight back to their exam room when it's ready. We're also pre-screening patients before they come to the office to assess for risk factors and ask caregivers to stay home if they're sick. The other thing that patients can expect is that masks are now universal. So all of our staff, the caregivers, and any children over the age of two are wearing masks whenever they're in our offices. 
And when families don't have masks, we can provide them. Chop even made a great video that shows children that we're still the same friendly people underneath our masks. I did watch that. It's adorable and so well done. And, and somebody's thinking everything you do is so geared to um, make children happy to go see their doctor. It was adorable. <laughs> so you. let's talk about vaccinations. Um, there's so much to share about that that people need to be reminded. Tell us about that, if you would. You know, there are certain ages where kids get a majority of their immunizations, so we've prioritized those well visits so we can make sure that kids are getting in and getting the immunizations that they need. These ages are under age 2, age 4 years, and 11 years. And now we're expanding that to include those who may be behind on immunizations, maybe a child who's 5 and never got their 4-year-old shots, and kids who need immunizations before they go off to college. If a patient missed their immunizations due to COVID-19, they don't need to start over. We just follow the CDC catch-up schedule and we can get them right back on track. Sometimes, though, this means more frequent visits to the office, so we don't want children to fall behind in the first place. Right. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And it's good for people to know you can catch up. So what are you telling parents about sending their children back to daycare? Uh, Because everybody's in a unique situation. I know my own daughter works in a hospital and they have daycare right next to the hospital and her husband's home for now. But when he goes back, mm. Mm, what do what do parents do about that? Yeah, this is so hard. Not every caregiver has a choice and some need to send their children back to daycare or camp so that they can work. If this is the case, you should know that there are ways to minimize your risk. So learn the policies of your child care center. First, be sure they have policies and procedures in place that encourage sick employees and students to stay home when they're sick. And second, make sure there's education for all the staff and students about hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette and that there's enough supplies in the classroom for cleaning. As much as possible, you want to maintain some social distancing, preventing sharing of food, and minimizing your class sizes. The CDC actually has guidelines posted online that parents can share with their child care center to provide them some guidance if they don't already know what they're doing. Sure. And if parents parents do have a choice, sorry. Yeah, if parents do have a choice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if they do have a choice in sending them back, they should stay up to date with their local COVID-19 case counts and follow the local guidelines about social distancing. But balance the pros of socialization and education with the risks of COVID-19 for your family. Every family is different, and some may have more high-risk family members, so it's a pretty individualized decision if it's the right time to return. Sure. And we talk about um, all the practical issues that we can see, signs and symptoms of viral illness, but what about the mental health of our children? They can't yeah, play with we... their friends. Yeah, they, you, they, and the children who are old enough worry about their parents who are going out to work, mm-hmm. or those, uh, it's a really, it's, Dealing with loss of any grandparent or family member is hard for everyone, including children. But this one is especially hard for them to understand, I would guess. And how are you talking to children uh, about COVID-19? Yeah, we worry a lot about the long-term effects of the pandemic on children. In a UK study, 83% of teens with mental health diagnoses reported that COVID made their symptoms worse. And Mm. in Wuhan, China, a study showed elevated rates of anxiety and depression in youth. Like most adults, our children are worried, too. Even if you think your child doesn't know much about COVID, they're picking up on a lot more than you think, including your own emotions. So the first thing is to manage your own emotions around your kids, right? Good luck, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
it's hard. But as much as you can, you want to try to let your children share their feelings and ask questions. And children worry more when we don't include them in the conversation. So start by asking your child what they already know. Use that as your jumping off point. It's hard to know what to teach them unless you know what they already understand. Mm -hmm. And so use that as your starting point and then focus on some of these things. So one is you can reassure your child that doctors and scientists are working hard to keep everyone safe. And things like that mask video that we talked about, that can be a great way to show children that their doctors are at the hospital and they're taking care of all the sick kids and that they don't have to worry about those people. Mm-hmm. Then you can and- talk about what you're doing in your family, too. You can practice hand washing together, and then it becomes part of their routine so that they can become involved in this, in this practice of keeping everyone healthy. Well, and I think you make a good point. If you all do, do as I do, not as I say, which is the reverse of what people often do. If children see you washing your hands, then it becomes uh, imprinted in their brains. And what might be one of the lessons out of COVID-19 is hand hygiene in general. Uh, I'm sure you have at Children's Hospital, all hospitals we have, um, about every six months we have to update um tests that we take to make sure we're Mm -hmm. aware of how to handle hazardous materials and hygiene and patient care. And we have a beautiful video about hand washing and all the reasons why frequent hand washing um, decreases your risk for so many infections, Clostridium difficile, hepatitis A. And we hope that maybe people's uh, better hygiene with sneezing into their bent elbow and coughing will Mm -hmm. help with the flu. And, you know, we talk about herd immunity and infectivity rate. Um, if people develop good habits because of this virus, maybe it'll flow into our behavior with other viruses, including the flu that, that really affects a lot of people too. So I hope and, so, Marianne. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, I see people sneeze into the air and do yeah. interesting, interesting habits. So what about especially children's exposure to the news media? It is just nonstop. It's all around. Even adults are undone by the 24-7 exposure to media. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it's important that as much as possible, we limit children's exposure to the media, especially the news. Um, But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk to them about the news in a developmentally appropriate way. And like I said, you want to check in with them, let them ask questions, and don't be afraid as a parent to say that you don't know if they ask you a question um, that you're not sure about. There is some uncertainty for all of us, and that's okay. That's okay for your children to learn that we don't necessarily have the answers to everything, but you can still provide them reassurance. I'll say there's a good CNN um, Sesame Street collaboration that, where they did a town hall for children, and you can find that online. So if you want to use some media to help teach your kids about coronavirus, that can be a nice developmentally appropriate way to talk about coronavirus with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we remind them of is schools and daycares might be closed for now, but it's not forever. And right. I, I know for myself, even when I talk to my patients who are talking about retirement, I remind them, Keep a schedule. Don't think, okay, now that I'm retired, I'm going to stay in bed till 10 o'clock in the morning. And um, Routine provides comfort to all of us, but especially children, wouldn't you say? And and keeping a regular schedule for meals and bedtime has to help them feel a sense of normalcy. Definitely. I think that it's easy now that we're all at home for the days and nights and weekdays and weekends to all blend together, but it's really important that parents 
try to mirror a routine that's close to what they were doing. Now, certainly it's hard to do everything exactly the same as before, but as close as you can to their regular school schedule because they still need to get that good sleep. They need to be eating regularly. Um, and that will help provide them some comfort to keep some of those things the same. And if you can, you can incorporate some of the routines from um, school into your home life. So as silly as it sounds, when you're going out to play, instead of calling it going out to play, you could call it recess. Sure. Um, so it does make them feel some sense of comfort to keep those same routines from school going during this time. And some of that might be done through their uh, connection with the school itself, but some of that can be parents coming up with ways to mirror their schedule. Sure. And I think that structure is so important, again, for all of us. So you can, at the end of the day, look at your day and say, this is what I accomplished and, and feel good about it. And it's a way really to distract us from the lack of ability to say, where is this beginning? Where is it going to end? And and I really like that you say, start a conversation with your child well, what is your impression or what do you already know and start from there? Because a lot of times, um, and, and part of it's a time factor, people will talk to children and say, Brr, and they'll, they'll go on an explanation and not know where the anchor is in the child's mind. So that's a really good point, too. And I know CHOP has wonderful resources on your website. Can you tell us about that at all? We've compiled a bunch of different resources for families to um, talk to them about how to talk to their kids, like you mentioned, and also some links to things uh, such as that town hall that I talked about. Also, the Child Mind Institute has some great resources for families just to help them understand what kids might be going through during this time. It's um, easy to think that our kids are handling this um, well because we protect them, but they're really, like I said, picking up on so many things around them. I mean, for one, their parents are probably home more, and like you mentioned, they may have sick family members or grandparents, or, um, and all these things are things that they're processing and taking in, so it's important that we address that and don't just gloss over it with them. Right, and I think when you really look at what we've all experienced in a relatively short time. I, it probably seems long to some people, but um, it's been March, April, May. Okay. And what I've noticed myself is when we were growing up, we sat down as a family for dinner every night. And that's where your mother could see the, the, um, the nervousness in your face if you failed a test or somebody mm -hmm. called you a name in the schoolyard. And this might be a, a great opportunity for families to have more FaceTime, real live, not screen FaceTime, but people FaceTime, and get back into the habit of eating together and enjoying that family time and really getting to know each other again. That might sound silly, but once in a while we'll go out to dinner with our own kids and I look around a restaurant and I'll see a mother and a father and two or three children all on their cell phones, not even not enjoying their their dinner experience together. And maybe that'll be one of the lessons we learn from this whole uh, time in our history. Yeah, I think um, it's definitely one of the unexpected positives. Yes, and that we can take it forward and, and see the value in really looking for changes in your child's behavior and emotions when they have ups and downs. And uh, nobody knows your child better than you do. And mm -hmm. you have children, so you understand as a mother and as a doctor. That's right. So it's a special gift for your patients because uh, and and their moms and dads well let's take a little break 
and we'll be back in just a moment. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're back in our final segment this week of Your Radio Doctor with our guest, Dr. Katie Lockwood, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics from Children's Hospital. Katie, how can we protect our children from exposure to COVID? This is such a great question for a pediatrician because protecting children is at the forefront of everything we do. In terms of coronavirus specifically, the strategies that we're all using to protect ourselves are important for children too. So social distancing, wearing a mask, and washing our hands. Those are really going to be the most important for everyone. But beyond just preventing infection, we need to protect children's physical and emotional health. So the stay-at-home period has made it even harder for kids to exercise, but this is a really important part of wellness. So if you can, try to make sure your kids get outside to play. If this isn't possible, they can do things like exercising indoors. I always recommend dancing, and there's a program called Go Noodle, which is free and gives kids silly songs to dance along with in a way that feels a little bit more social than just dancing alone in your house. I would have to get that for myself. I like that. (laughs) that would be funny Um, also you want to try to keep your kids socially connected so we keep talking about social distancing but it's really physical distancing that we're doing we still want to stay socially connected and there are different ways to video chat with friends and family members that can help with this but they can also do things like writing letters or creating art for the people that they miss And while they may be missing out on birthday parties or graduations, and that can make kids sad, you can also find ways to celebrate these things while you're socially distancing. Another thing is to just make the routine things that we're doing every day feel a little special by naming them. So I do this at home with my kids by um, calling the movie that we watch at night family movie night. Even though we're watching movies all the time, it makes it feel a little more special. Same thing with game night. That also brings a little excitement to something that otherwise would feel routine. And you can include friends and family by video so that they can participate in these activities with you and you still feel that connection with them. Well, I, I, I hate to <laughs> it's going to make you laugh. My children are 29, 31, and 33, and we had a family game night on uh, Zoom <laughs> the other night. And it, it, it was so much fun. We didn't just sit and, you know, chatter the same thing we really had fun and it was it was a it was a big people game and it was fun yeah and lastly i think it really helps to focus on the action that we can take and this can be as simple as hand washing with young kids or donating food to those in need and sewing masks for healthcare workers for a school-aged child or talking about your local election and mailing in your ballot with a teenager These things help us feel empowered in our current situation. And instead of focusing on some of the negatives, it helps us focus on a better future. Sure. And I think, too, Katie, I love the idea of getting, encouraging your children to write letters or create art for people they miss. Because I'm always so moved or so impressed when somebody takes the time to sit down and write a thank you note instead of an Mm -hmm. email or a call or a text. It takes a little more effort and there's a little more positive emotion to it and as you say protecting our children is more than just printing preventing the actual virus 
So thank you so much for sharing this important information. Dr. Katie Lockwood from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We're so fortunate, and Philadelphia is fortunate to have you as a pediatrician. And I want our listeners to remember to visit the CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia website, chop.edu. And a phone number to call for an appointment is 1-800-TRY-CHOP. 1-800-TRY-CHOP, T-R-Y-C-H-O-P, or the website chop.edu. Katie, thank you once again. We appreciate your time and expertise. Stay well. Thank you so much. You too. I call this story, The Will of Grace. Let me tell you about Grace Myers, a junior at Upper Marion High School. She likes to work hard and she likes to help other people. One day early in March, Grace woke up with the worst sore throat she could ever remember. A little while later, the fever came. Luckily, her mom called the pediatrician from CHOP, Children's Hospital, and she took Grace to one of their drive-through COVID testing centers. Within four hours, she learned she had a positive COVID test. Well, it was time to quarantine, and this disciplined young woman met the challenge with grace. She used a separate bathroom and stayed in her room for weeks. Her good behavior helped. No one else in the family got COVID, not her four brothers or sisters, not her parents, not her grandparents. Upper Marion High School had already closed, so she wouldn't be the only one to miss the prom, varsity crew season, or her meetings for the National Honor Society or the German National Honor Society. She was able to keep up with her classes online, but when she finally recuperated, she found a way to help others who also had COVID. Grace's mom, Cheryl Gabeline Myers, is the Senior Director of Clinical Operations for CHOP. Grace heard her mother talk about donating to the Red Cross, but it was Grace who called and made the appointment for herself to donate her convalescent plasma as a way to give back after she felt better. In fact, Grace had already donated blood at a school drive the year before at the age of 16. Cheryl drove her daughter Grace to the Red Cross, and of course, Grace went inside alone while mom stayed in the car. Mom sent a text, but Grace couldn't answer because there was a needle in each arm. Mom praised the Red Cross staff for coming out with an update every 20 minutes. Grace Myers is used to helping others. In between classes and crew, she's a member of two clubs, No Place for Hate and Best Buddies, a group that works with children on the autism spectrum. While other teenagers would shy away from the process of donating blood or plasma, for Grace, it was a, quote, no-brainer. She said it made her feel good to do something. Grace Myers, at age 17, is already making a difference in the world. Rather than focusing on the disappointments of her school year, Grace gives us hope as a young woman for others and a leader of tomorrow. For this week, your real champion is Grace Myers. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to hear any of our shows again, you can find them on our website, yourradiodoctor.com or radio.com. And remember, the website for Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is chop.edu or you can call 800-TRY-CHOP. Now, I know your American flag was hanging for Memorial Day to honor our fallen servicemen and women. Now, keep waving your American flag to honor COVID patients, their families, and all those at risk. Send us questions that we can answer on our next show. Send us stories about your real champions, people in your family, your office, your neighborhood, who are going the extra mile to help others. And send us pictures of your flag 
or champion stories or your questions to info at yourradiodoctor.com. That's info at yourradiodoctor.com. Tune in next week to hear about what's happening in emergency departments across the country. Wear your mask, wash your hands, six feet apart, be a good citizen. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.